Hello, and welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I'm your host, Viv, and some of you know me as Sober I Thrive. Make sure to visit our website on SobertownPodcast.com. You will find our free Zoom calendars, Todd's modules for your sober toolbox, sober recovery stories, and our link to the Sobertown Facebook group on SobertownPodcast.com. I'll chat with guests and community members about topics related to sobriety and recovery. There are also a couple of sober communities called Boom, Rethink the Drink, and the I Am Sober app, where most of our website contributors met for SoberTownPodcast.com. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, extra special guest to me. She's here to share the unique recovery story and long-term sobriety and to join us and tell us about her journey and how she is living her life sober. Get ready to be inspired and join the sobering journey with us. She's a very special guest of mine. She has been my sober coach. She is the person that, although she says that I saved my own life and lit my own path, but she showed up. She got sober first in order to show up for me. So that's how I, I interpret things is that it takes one of us to become sober, recover out loud, do the work in order to save somebody else's life. So I want to thank you. This is my sober coach now, then my life coach, now my business coach and my mentor, Heather Lowe from Ditch the Drink. Hi, Heather. <laughs> Hi, what a beautiful introduction. I had this image of like lighting a match, like on a birthday cake when there's a lot of candles to light, lighting the first candle and using that candle to light the next one and the next one and the next one. As you know, I got sober, I was able to guide you in getting sober. And now you are guiding everyone who's listening to this podcast and more in getting sober. So it's so, so beautiful that we're absolutely lighting up the world. I was so excited and I told some of my, my community, I said, I get to do the recovery story for my sober coach. So I feel like it's almost a full circle for me in my journey and just meeting you also was just full circle. And so all, all of this, just is a culmination of, of what's next, right? What is next? And it's so beautiful to see. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. So take us back. How did little Heather start? Yes, I love it. I've been thinking about it a lot. So first of all, I just want to remind you that we've been saying for years, someday we'll meet in person. The day will come. And just a couple of weeks ago, we actually spent a weekend together at Silver in the City in Palm Springs. So that was just absolutely incredible. And this is totally strange because as your coach, I'm always here asking you questions. And now you as a podcast host are turning around and asking me questions. So it is full circle and it's awesome. So Lit Heather, I've been thinking a lot about this. So I was born to my mom and my dad in a very small town in Wisconsin. And a new song came out by Morgan Wallen, who's a country artist. And my daughter and I are going to be going to his concert coming up. And it was called, I was born with a beer in my hand. 
And I was surprised that she knew this whole album was about him getting sober or more sober-ish. And I thought, me too. I was born with the beer mayhem, basically. Like, who? I'm five years sober now. So looking back, I have new eyes to see. And of course, I blamed myself and I was full of shame and just coping the best I could for most of my life. But now when I look back at my little baby self, I think, who was I not to develop an alcohol problem? Of course I would. I was primed for it. So first of all, my dad had an alcohol problem. He was also a bartender. And I like to say he took his work home with him. So, and my parents, we met in a beer tent. So, I mean, in the town I was raised, there's more bars than churches. It's like drinking is very, it's in Wisconsin. Drinking is very, very normalized. Like beer is practically the, you know, the state master. So I, we didn't know what we know now about addiction. My godmother is the only sober woman that I knew. And this was in the seventies and she had a drinking problem, got slapped on the hand had to go to these basement meetings with men and sit in the corner with her back, sit in the corner at a party with her back to the party and not participate because she was a bad drinker. Like was kind of the tone, like shame on her. She couldn't do it right. And so she was sad and I was sad for her. And that was certainly not the kind of life I wanted to live. So where to begin? I mean, starting like that, it's like drinking was just normalized. And I don't blame my parents either. They didn't know any better. And alcohol was a rite of passage. So it was always part of my life. So my parents divorced by the time I was two years old. And I remember very, very early, I wanted to be perfect. I was the first and only child of divorce in both families. And I wanted to protect my parents from anybody thinking there was anything wrong with them or anything wrong with us. I didn't want anyone to worry about anything. And the way to do that was to be okay myself, was to be high achieving and high performing. And that would prove to everybody that everything was okay. My mom was okay and my dad was okay and I was okay. We were all okay. So I did that. Also, my dad, he had a hard time being with me. But the time that I could depend on him was my parent teacher conferences. Every year in the beginning of the year, parents are invited in to meet with the teachers and see how the kids are doing. So I got lots of attention for my good grade. That was the only time my mom and dad were together. And I loved my mom and dad together. I wanted us to be one family unit. And so I loved that. I got very good grades. My dad would pass around my grades to his side of the family and be so proud of me, right? So getting good grades and performing really well was the way that I coped with this. So my mom basically raised me and she also loved beer, right? Like she went back to school. She got remarried. So then I was in a blended family. My dad also remarried. They both had kids. So I have siblings that are 10 years younger than me. And my mom was getting her master's degree. She was moving up into a director's position. She had a new baby. I had a stepsister, so she had a new marriage, a stepdaughter, a new baby. I was the one that was always okay. I was the one to not worry about because I was okay. I was obviously a high performer, a good student, a good girl, not to worry, put the attention elsewhere. So we moved around a lot. We rented homes and we moved sometimes within the same school district. A couple of times there was different schools. So I got very adapted at being likable, being popular, being friendly being loved. I was begging 
her love anywhere I could, right? To be accepted and to belong. When I was 12 years old, I remember having my first drink. It was prior to that, when my mom was dating my stepdad, we would go out on Friday night for pizza and they would drink beer and we would be at the kind of place where you would throw your peanut shells on the floor. And my stepsister and I would just ask for more money to plug into the video games, right? While they drank and they flirted. And I mean, these adults trying to have a date, but they had their kids and they had nowhere to put their kids. So we were just sort of there with them, right? I give them a lot of empathy and compassion for that to try to have a budding romance with these young children, elementary school children in the way. <laughs> but anyways, we made it work. I have a beautiful family. I love my family, every single one of them. But it was a little bit rocky in the beginning. By the time I was 12 years old, I started to rip. I was maybe sick of being the good girl. Anyways, I slammed a bush light beer because I was mad at my mom and I wanted her to know and I wanted her to know how serious it was that I had stolen a beer. And from there, it just kind of continued. I liked it. I loved it. It lit me up. It felt amazing. And I had a taste for it. So through like early, like middle school, just testing once in a while, I'd be babysitting and I'd bring a friend and we'd have a little bit of the mom's box wine from the basement fridge. And we'd visit my friend's dad who also had a drinking problem on the weekends and wasn't really supervising us. And we would fill our cups with his vodka and then fill his vodka with water and the whole, the whole thing. We liked it. It gave us something to do. We were bored and we were looking for something to do. And when I was in high school, I started going to parties and thank God I never drove. I always had a safe driver. I knew the dangers of that. Kids from my school died every year from drunk driving accidents on country roads. My friend's mom was a paramedic and she was often the first on the scene to those. So her daughter, my friend, always provided a safe ride and I'm really grateful. But I drink. I drink beer in barns. I drink beer in cornfields and sand pits and anywhere us kids could go. Again, small town Wisconsin, nothing else to do. Totally acceptable, like a rite of passage, like pretty much expected that the kids are going to go drink beer on the weekends. Totally normalized. So I did it and it gave me courage. It gave me courage to talk to boys. It gave me courage to walk into upperclassmen parties where I maybe was or wasn't invited. And I liked it. Immediately, I knew I liked it more than most because I always wanted it and I never wanted the party. I never wanted to go home. I was never done. Just kept going through college. Got a fake ID. Went to the bars. Wanted Some people wanted to go on the weekends. I wanted to go every night. Tuesday's peanut night. Wednesday's $3 pictures. Thursday's, you know, Friday Eve. There's always a reason to go out. And I always wanted to go out. I was super social. Loved my friends. Loved to chit chat. Loved to get to know people. Was absolutely boy crazy. Just loved to dance. Loved music. Loved going out and socializing and alcohol was always part of that. And it always gave me courage. And I was a drinker. It was my identity. It's where I came from. I was proud of it and I liked it. However, I knew that I liked it more than most. I always knew that I liked it more than most. And in fact, looking back, I have a journal. And when I turned 21, it was my golden birthday, ironically, I, I wrote, I was scared that I was an alcoholic. Wow. It would be 20 more years, 21 more, exactly 21 more years before I actually quit drinking. The awareness at that age. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't want to be like my dad. Right? Like he was the kind of drinker. So my dad actually quit drinking by the time I was five years old. And he was the kind of drinker who would drive home and park his car on Main Street and where we lived in a little town 
and he would be passed out with the door open and one leg out the door. And my grandpa was the director of public works and he would roll down the street first thing in the morning and see my dad there. So that was embarrassing and concerning and I did not want to be an alcoholic like that, right? Who would? So anyways, my dad quit drinking. He didn't use any kind of program and it was never really talked about. And I'm not sure he did all the work. He certainly transferred his anxieties and things to other things. And he's now gone, but I'll get to that. But anyways, yeah, drinking was a huge part of my identity and I was definitely scared. I mean, my first sleepover with a friend in sixth grade, we talked about our dads being alcoholics. That was like the thing that connected us. So it wild, but my clients actually report the same thing. Their dad was an alcoholic. Their grandpa was an alcoholic. Their mom was an alcoholic. So that's not a term that I use for myself, but certainly having an issue with alcohol ran in my family. It ran in my town. It ran in my community and it was encouraged. So I had environment, I had genetic, I had childhood trauma, you know, and trauma is just something I'm learning about. I thought that was something reserved for the, for like a war scene or a tragic accident or something, but it's not traumas, any like concerning thing that happens to you and then what you do internally to manage that. So my parents' divorce was one thing. And then what I did was expect myself to be perfect, right? Or my dad had his own limitations on spending time with me or being a parent, being present with me. And I turned that into me chasing people that were unavailable to me right? because as I learn about attachment styles, that's what to me, that's what felt most like home to me. So also if I could bring, you know, then I could kiss a boy and he maybe, maybe, or maybe wouldn't like me back. And I could also drink to forget the feelings of rejection that that would give me. Right. And so drinking provided a lot of support <laughs> until it didn't. It was a very easy elixir to go to to calm my anxieties and then to calm my thoughts about myself. And then having a really loud inner critic, it helped me to not listen to my own, to shut myself up, to take the edge off being myself. So that was all seemingly normal drinking, although secretly I knew better. As I met my husband in a bar, of course, where else? We were both party people. We got engaged, we got married, we moved from Wisconsin to Chicagoland. And now we had jobs, we had happy hours, we had a little more money. So we were going to Cubs games and music concerts and restaurants and having a lot of fun with our drinking. We weren't just in the college bars anymore. We were doing these activities with other young urban professionals and it was mostly fun. I, again, my husband would say nothing good happens after midnight. He would want to go home. I didn't, I was always looking for the after party. I never wanted anything to end. Because we were young and had no responsibility, so we could go out almost every night and did. And we could be hungover and get through our like dumb little newbie jobs for the day. So that's how our life went. And again, I definitely like drinking more than him. I never wanted to stop, but it was all still seemingly normal. Then I got pregnant and I didn't drink through my pregnancy. But as soon as my firstborn was born, I remember being home and I switched from beer to wine. It, like having like some white Zinfandel or rosé, it felt very European to be home on maternity leave, to have my afternoons free, to maybe pour a glass of wine while I'm feeding the baby or whatever. In fact, sometimes they say a little alcohol is good for your breast milk to come in. So it felt like do no, I'm doing no harm. This is this is so adult. This is so grown up. 
of me to have my baby. I'm like playing shows, but in real life, you know, right? And so my husband and I decided that I would work part-time and he would work full-time and he got a job that was demanding and he traveled a lot. And that allowed us the financial ability for me to work part-time. I also had career ambitions. So I was actually able to move up in my job as a part-time worker. Plus, I had the flexibility and the luxury of being home with my kids a lot. So a lot of the duties like fell on me and we chose this. I, we thought together when the kids were young, I would be the person that should be there. And I didn't want to outsource all of parenting or anything. So we were in agreement with this. I had my second child, again, didn't, didn't during the pregnancy, but now I had two little ones and a job and a husband that traveled a lot. And what was missing was friendships and connection and social life. So my husband was going on business trips to Vegas and having private Katy Perry concerts and fabulous dinners and living the high life and being able to drink for work and, and get away. And I was at home with two little ones and a lot of demands, as that is. So a little something to get me through, you know, bath time, dinner time, bedtime. I was lonely. Looking back, I was very lonely and I was bored. You know, it's like busy bored when your kids are young. So I was desperate for connection. My friends were my hometown friends and they were two and a half hours away. I didn't have a mommy's group, you know, to support me while I was home alone raising two kids with a husband that traveled a lot. So I just kept drinking. And one bottle, you know, a glass became two and having two glasses a couple times a week became having a bottle almost every single night. I, when my youngest went to kindergarten, I was recruited to take a big time job and I took it. I thought, it, you know, she's going to kindergarten. It's time for me to grow in my career, my time to shine. So my dad actually died during my interview process with this job. He just died unexpectedly at 60 years old. Wow. And so I did his eulogy. And then in the next two years, two of my friends died. One fell off a roof on the 4th of July and died. And then the other, he was my prom date. He was my lifelong friend. And then the other was my neighbor who was diagnosed with cancer and dead two months later. Both these guys left. One left two kids and one left five kids and a wife that had never worked outside the home. So they were really, really sad situations, very out of order deaths. And I did both of their eulogies. So I did three eulogies for one for my dad and these other out of order shocking deaths in three years. I took this job. I broke, my dad died during the interview process. I took it because I didn't want to use that as an excuse to hold me back. And then I slipped on the ice and broke my leg the first week on the job. So I was grieving. I had a broken leg. It was January in Chicago, complete blizzard, no remote work options. So I had to get myself in a broken leg to the office in the city and back every single day. I was absolutely miserable. This job, I had a team of like six to 10 people that reported to me. I had to be there first thing in the morning. I had to be last at night. There was evening events. There was early morning events. I was one of few women on an all-male sales team. I remember we went on a retreat, like a director's retreat. It was one of the first things that we did. We were supposed to be the dream team this new leadership team. And they asked us, like, what was our dream come true or what did we want out of this job? 
And all the men went around the room and they said they wanted to be financially successful enough so their wives can stay at home full time with the kids. And I thought to myself, I am, I'm the wife that's home full time with the kids. And I'm also in the exact same position as you. So I am trying to do both of these things, right? So that job didn't work out. So I got another one, which moved me up the ladder where I was the only female on an oatmeal sales team. And then that didn't work out. And I got another one where I moved up the ladder and again was the only female in an oatmeal sales team. So drinking also felt like part of the job. I could be part of the old boy club. The last company I worked with was a startup. And when I went in for my interview at 10 in the morning, they offered me a beer because I had a keg in the office. I said, no, I teased that if it was wine, I would have had it. I really, I didn't drink at work. I didn't over drink. What I would do is have a couple drinks and then go home and then drink for real by myself. So I wouldn't embarrass myself. I knew enough that I was unpredictable when I was drinking. Once I started, I didn't want to stop. I didn't know when enough was enough and I wasn't going to ruin my jobs over it. So I always drank with the people and then squid it out and then finish drinking home alone on the couch. So being in an unhappy career situation where I was completely exhausted, I really, really missed my kids. I missed my home. The laundry wasn't being done. Things weren't running how I wanted them to. I was totally miserable, like soul-sucking jobs. I was completely miserable. And then I had all this grief. I had all this grief from these deaths that I just stuffed down. I stuffed down because I had to do eulogies and I wanted to give a very eloquent and beautiful testimony of their lives. So I didn't allow myself to feel before the services so I could present well. And then I didn't let myself feel after because I said, get over it. It's done. Move on. You have to get over it. And I'm a deeply, deeply feeling person and I'm a very, very emotional person. So I couldn't get over it. I wasn't over it. I'm still not over it. I'll get tears in my eyes right now. And hurt me. I missed my people. And I didn't know how to feel that. So instead, I poured alcohol on it. Every night, the family would go upstairs and I would stay downstairs and I would pour another drink and another drink and another drink until my mind shut up and I thought I had had enough and I would stumble up the stairs and throw myself in bed. I would get up in the morning and absolutely hate myself, start with a punch in the face and head downstairs and look at the damage I had done. Have I put the wine in the recyclables? Did I really drink the second bottle? Oh my God. Being a detective, looking for clues. Is my husband mad at me? Are the kids mad at me? Did I do anything? I would start making lunches and cleaning up and hating my, trying to breathe, hoping I wasn't so hungover that I couldn't enjoy my morning coffee. It was like a really bad day if I can even have coffee, right? And drag myself through the day. I'd have panic attacks when I was driving alone. I was hot and shaky, showing up like an absolute mess, putting on a happy face as best I could, just going through every day like that. And I did that for a decade, pulling myself through the days. And finally, my anxiety was so bad, I called my employee assistance program from work. And I said, I need help. I need help. I knew I was getting out of control. And they said, okay, leave six messages at all these different places and we'll see you in two weeks. I was calling like an emergency. <laughs> they were like, okay, make all these appointments, punch all these numbers into a phone. You know, we'll see you in two weeks. Well, 
I was assigned a therapist who I said I had a drinking problem. She was trained in substance abuse. And I met with her and I said, I have a drinking problem. And I'm worried that I'm drinking too much. And after talking, she said, you don't have a drinking problem. You're not hurting your kids. You're not doing anything. You're not causing any harm. I think she was on a harm reduction idea. And so she said, she prescribed me anti-anxiety meds. And I said, do I have to quit drinking? And she said, no, you can keep drinking. You're fine. Take these meds. So I was thrilled. I picked up my prescription and I picked up a bottle of wine and I went home and I got on the phone and I told everybody, I'm fine. I don't have to quit drinking. Thank God it's just anxiety. Don't worry. Whatever. Started taking these pills and drinking. Well, it says right on the package, you shouldn't drink with these pills. But I chose to ignore that because the professional told me not to. So anyways, now this was really, really messing with me. Now I was becoming a walking blackout on many occasions. And it was like, I would feel like I would hardly have anything to drink. And then I would black out. I would lose chunks of time. I would be walking, talking, and I would have no idea. So it, it had been confusing for my family. Let's say my husband in particular, who was like, yeah, I don't think drinking is good for her. But he knew the only thing I preached to him my whole life is you're not my dad. Don't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. So wasn't sure what to say. And then I was getting up in the morning before anybody and making lunches and sweeping the floor and going to work. I was doing all my responsibilities. I was an alcohol fueled my over-functioning, to be honest, because all my guilt and shame led to me being super productive and efficient in every other way to cover up for the thing that I was drinking every night and feeling shameful about that. So for the most part, I tried to hide it, but the kids were catching on. Mom, you're drinking again, or you said you wouldn't, or oh, shoot, she's slurring or drunk. You know, there's probably a handful of those times that I would do anything to take back. That hurts me more than anything. I wish I could take it back and I can't. So I marched to the orders of change behavior as the best apology. So anyways, what I decided to do was take a break from drinking. And so I had been searching online and I found a f- very few resources. There was Belle from Tired of Thinking About Drinking, which I totally recommend. She had a 100-day challenge. And there was Holly Whitaker and her hip sobriety blog, which is no longer available, which saved my life. I mean, I would be drinking alone at night in the dark, looking up these blogs and reading how to quit drinking as I was taking my sips of wine. Because this is how we start. Anybody listening who's doing that, I'm with you. I hear you. This is how you start. You gather research. You gather evidence. You start to get curious. So that was me getting curious. So I decided to do a 100-day challenge. And I I made it to 70 days. I thought I was cured. This was great. It was a little uncomfortable. I actually had a 40th birthday trip to LA with some girlfriends. And I stayed sober, surprised myself. And it was great. But after 70 days, obviously I was cured. I didn't really have to go to the hundred or anything like that. And I could just start drinking again, like a normal person. So the goal was always to be a normal drinker. My worst case scenario, I had a vision of myself in a hospital bed, my kids at my feet crying and apologizing that I was that I had drank myself to death. That was the number one worst case scenario. The second worst case scenario was getting sober, being a sober person. Absolutely not what I wanted to do. 
right? So the third door, the controlling my drinking, that sounded like the right thing to drink the right amount, the right amount of time. So that's what I was going for. And clearly I could do that because I just didn't drink for 70 days. What happened in that 70 days though, was when my head hit the pillow at night, I started to feel proud of myself. And when I would wake up in the morning and when I was drinking, my first question of the day was, how bad do I feel? Which is a really shitty way to start your day, by the way. Do you expect yourself to have a good day when your first question is, how bad do I feel today on the scale of bad to worse, basically? That's how you're starting the day. So I starting the day without that, starting the day with like, good morning, Heather, fresh and new, that felt better. So I went back to drinking and it escalated quickly and I took another break and I went back to drinking and it escalated quickly. And I did this for three years, one time being five months sober and then going to Mexico and having a welcome drink. I could have one with or without tequila. I chose without. I got tequila. I told myself to set that down and walk away. I set that down and I walked away and I turned back and I drank it. I said, okay, now you're going to have margaritas, but you're not going to have wine. And now you're going to keep it in Mexico and you're not going to bring it home and the whole bit. And we, we already know how that story ends. I drank the entire time. I woke up at 1030 hungover. I missed yoga. I missed the sunrise. I missed everything I wanted to do. I was on a boat watching whales, feeling like I was going to throw up right there. It was awful. Now that serves as like the best reminder that I don't want to drink anytime I'm on vacation, anytime I'm anywhere beautiful and tropical. I've been to Mexico and back probably six, seven times. And no, those drinks won't pull me anymore. I know how that turns out because I've already done it. So it was actually a lesson. So that's something else for people struggling or feeling like they've had a slip that it's obviously not a linear path. And some of those seemingly slips are the biggest lessons that build your muscle for the long haul. So, yeah, so, okay, this on off drinking for, and then three years of this on off drinking, trying to manage and control. And actually, the downfall each time seemed to get faster and quicker and was escalating. The speed train was, you know, it was crazy train was running faster and more furious with each attempt. And so, it was February of 2018. I was, I was let go from a job. I was interviewed for, of no fault of my own, in all honesty. And I was interviewing and I was about to get offers for all these same jobs, jobs I was qualified for, jobs that I had done. And I didn't want to do them. I just didn't want to do them. So they hadn't made me happy ever. Even though I could do them, I didn't want to do them. I, I was depressed. I was just miserable. I was so disconnected from my husband. Most of my drinking I blamed on, I, I blamed that it wasn't what alcohol that was the problem. It wasn't my wine. It was him, that he's not doing enough, that I'm overwhelmed, that I do everything. So, but that was the problem. Anyways, we were out to dinner and I was trying to open up a little and we were very disconnected, trying to share how unhappy I was. And he mentioned that the wine wasn't helping. And I was pissed off. I was really pissed off that he said, so I left. I was like, I won't fine. I won't drink to prove to him that it wasn't alcohol. It was him for the first time in my whole life. I left my half full glass of wine at that table and I got up and left. And prior to ready, I figured we'd stop and get some wine on our way home. Right. But we didn't. And we just came home and it was very, 
I mean, I probably had just a couple of glasses of wine. We came home. I was pissed that I could, that I couldn't get more wine that I kind of like called his bluff. And I went to bed and I woke up the next day and I was like, I have to quit drinking. I have to give this a real because what I'm doing isn't working. I'm still miserable. I'm still drinking. I'm disconnected from him. I'm not the kind of parent I want to be. I don't like my job. I don't recognize myself in the mirror. I was so bloated. I was so puffy. I did not know who I was anymore. I was so confused. I was so anxious. I'm so depressed. I was so full of shame. I was so defensive. I was so resentful. I was just the darkest, ugliest version of myself that I thought, I don't know if this is going to work, but I have to give it a try. And if I can't do it on my own, I have to go for help. So he came downstairs and I said, can I talk to you? And he said, he's getting on a meeting. Can we talk afterward? And I said, I need just one second. And I said, I have to quit drinking. And he knew it was real. He looked at me with tears in his eyes. And I fell to my knees and I said, I need, and I need your help. And when anybody gets to that point, if, if that's the point you were at when you called me, that is the point where you turn around. That is the point where you get to change. That is the point where you stop digging in the lake that you have and you start to recognize that you have to do something different. My husband was so happy to hear those words. And he wanted direction and how to help me because he had no idea. I said, can you just not drink with me for the first few weeks? And he was like, yes, anything. I was like, okay. And she had a better idea than I did that our whole life was going to change because secretly he had been researching on the side how to help me, how to not be a codependent, how to not enable somebody, how to love somebody who drinks too much. You know, he just was like going to let me be me, but he was watching the downfall and he knew I was about ready to hurt myself. Like, I was going to fall down the stairs one of these nights and die from my drinking. I knew I'd have a diagnosis right around the corner coming for me. You could not drink two bottles of wine a day, every day, looking at my skin, looking at my face, like something bad was coming for me. But luckily, thank God, I will never know because I didn't get there. So day by day, I put one foot in front of the other and I didn't know how to do this or what to do. And it was excruciating. But I started on day two, I started reading a daily devotional every morning and I started journaling. And I do love to write, but journaling became a way for me to listen to myself. And I journaled Morning Pages by Julia Cameron. I think that's a great resource people can look up. But most of my journals said, F you, F you, and F you too. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't a chronological story of my life. It's not even the truth, to be honest. It's just me getting my raw feelings out. And I had so much anger and so much resentment to work through, which turned into boundaries, boundaries that I had to set and learning to take care of myself. So because I started drinking at age 12, basically, I didn't have any coping skills. I was a toddler throwing a temper tantrum because I didn't know what to do with my emotions. I was absolutely flailing myself around like a baby because I literally, I didn't know how to feel. I had never let myself feel. So I did not know how to feel. So as we've talked about, I had this big thought, I'm feeling for the first time ever because I'm feeling, I don't have my number one coping tool, which is alcohol. And my brain is so out of whack right now because all my systems are all out of sort, trying to find a new homeostasis because they don't, my whole body doesn't know what to do. 
without alcohol. So I was really working through all of it. It was a real challenge. I kept it very close to my chest. I only my inner circle knew. It was hard to talk about because I didn't have words. I did not expect myself to be five years sober here on the others. I didn't know, you know, on day 10 that I get to day 11 and on day 11, I get to day 12, turn into year two and three. And now I'm a sober coach, blasting it everywhere I can. Like it's my only identity. I had no idea. I was afraid of failure every step of the way. I had a friend who got sober with me. She was at the same point in her life. So for the first year, I had this friend and I would call her and say, we used to go out for drinks. I would call her and say, we got to go for dessert and coffee right now. It's nine o'clock at night. I have to get out of my house. I'm going to lose my mind. And I would walk. I would walk around the block and I would walk around the block and I would walk around the block and I wouldn't come home until I was okay. And I was up looking like a crazy person talking to myself, walking around the block 12 times before I came home just to try to manage myself, right? I put my foot down. I spoke up about things. I started to teach my family how to treat me, that I wasn't a servant here and I had needs too. And I wanted alone time and I wanted respect and I wanted space and I wanted love. And here's how to give it. I became patient with my kids. I became honest with conversation. Same with friendship. Some enhanced. Some I lost. Some people weren't able to meet me where I was. I was asking for direct communication and I was asking for reciprocity. And when I wasn't getting that, I was, I stopped demanding it and I started to walk away and focus on me. So when I was one year sober, I made a Facebook announcement to tell the whole world that I was one year sober. It was very casual. You know, my drinking was never that bad. I'll say in quotes, because what does that bad mean? I was waking up miserable every single day. And so that was bad enough for me. And being that that bad kept me from being my best for far too long. So when people say that, it's like, what a low bar goal. Is your goal to like your biggest goal in your whole life to not get a DUI? I mean, congratulations, you haven't gotten a DUI, you know, or like to not have a liver disease by your own making. You know, those are two low bar goals for beautiful people. We can dream bigger than that. And we can just take alcohol out of the equation. So the first year is hard. Everybody knows because you're doing everything for the first time. And the first time you do anything, it's really hard. So my first wedding and my first Halloween and my first St. Patrick's Day and my first Christmas and my first brunch and my first birthday, like I had to learn how to celebrate myself and I had to learn how to do everything because I had done everything with a drink. I mean, when the days are sunny and when it's a snow day and when it rains, drink. When it's Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday, drink. I didn't know any other way. So I learned. I did a lot of new things. I learned and I grew. And after I was one year sober, I said to my husband, I got to start this drink. I got to put my energy into building a class for other high-achieving women like me to show them how to dish the drink. I want to give them the resources that I use. And because I had put together my own program, I had a friend, I had books, I had podcasts, I had learnings and lessons and routines and ideas. And my bachelor's degree is actually in social work. So it felt like a return to self. It felt this, this whole journey of sobriety felt like a return to self. I wanted to help people my whole life. In fact, when I was in third grade, I started a little business from my closet called Dare to Dream. And I had a journal and the goal was to help people live their best lives. 
Well, unfortunately, my only client was my cat, Big Paw. So I like to say I was in the business of helping cats live their best life with this journal. But I started Ditch the Drink out of my closet in our house above our garage. We have a bonus room and it's my closet off the master bedroom. And so I was working in there to start. And when I realized I came up with the name Ditch the Drink and it was a DTD, just like Dare to Dream from third grade, I was like, this is what I meant to do. This is what I've always been meant to do. So I put my little digital class jumpstart out there and it's still available on my website. People love it. My first student to sign up was my mom. And so my mom, who supports me in everything I do, took my class and cheered me on the entire time and took a break from alcohol herself and absolutely loved it. My sister has also taken the course, absolutely loves it. And since then, then I got an opportunity to get certified as a professional recovery coach and a, and a life coach. And I got that certification and I started one-on-one coaching and I now have a membership. And I started a newsletter. I started with a handful of email addresses, mine, my husband's, my other one, my other email address, and my mom. And that has grown. And now I have an audience of people that are interested in ditching the drink. So it's been so beautiful. The missing piece was friends, sober friends. I didn't have sober friends. I had friends. And most of my friends drink because, of course, as a drinker, I surrounded myself with drinkers. And some of my drinking buddies have been my biggest supports in sobriety. I have to say that all most some friendships ended in all honesty. I have some long term friendships that maybe are on a pause or maybe over or I'm not sure. But I also have a lot of friendships. Most of my friendships have improved because I became more real and I became more reliable as a friend. And it's not I, I have something to give now. It's not all about me. And I'm showing up to my life fully awakened and fully present for my friendships too. I'm not, the lights are still on at the end of the night, right? I I haven't lost myself and I'm not in my own head about my own hangover, my own drinking, or there's no energy or headspace taken up with that. So I definitely have more to give. I've, I've become a better friend, a better parent. My relationship with my children is prepared and healed and even better. They're welcome to talk to me about it at any time, but they are my biggest cheerleaders. I know they're so proud of me. They're my number one support. My husband has stuck by my side this entire time and it has made us stronger to overcome something together. It's truly beautiful. But I wanted people that were like me, people who had been through this war, right? This experience. And it's like motherhood. Like unless you've actually done it, you you can imagine what it would be like, but you don't really know firsthand. So I signed up for a sober hiking trip when I was four and a half years sober and the rest is history. I made sober friends. I am now full. My I have a full social calendar full of sober friends. And I have local friends and I have friends all over the world. And since then, I've been on, I'll be going on my third hiking trip this May. I've been to sober in the city, like with you, where we got to meet some people. <laughs> been to so many sober events. I've been to a Sandfire event in Minneapolis. I've been all over the, I, literally all over the world making friends. I have friends that I met up that we've met now in person in Colorado. I had a, my parents live in Colorado and I just went there and I had dinner with three sober people that I knew from the internet that were, that were all able to arrange babysitters and meet with me. And then I'm going to Washington, DC. I've got a date and sober bar with a friend. I'm like, okay, sober friends in California. 
I've got a silver friend in Spain. I'm hoping to meet. I've got two there, actually. So I have friends all over the world now, honest to God. And then I have some true blue friends that are like there for me every single day. And that was the missing piece. But I found that at four and a half years sober. And I just recently celebrated five years sober. And when you reach five years, they call it like remission almost from cancer. It's like you are no more likely to develop an alcohol problem than any person on the street, right? Anybody else. So it's like you're in full, full recovery and full remission. And my body is healed and my brain is healed. And I'm really proud of the work I've done. And I love being a sober coach. You know this firsthand, your audience might not. I think it's, it is, it's like what the world needs, what you're going to, right? And it's a perfect match for me. And it is an honor of my life to help other women through the quicksand that is alcohol, that is pulling you down and messing with your mind and hijacking your brain. And to help somebody out of that is the greatest work that I could do in my lifetime. And I'm super honored that I get to do it. I'm super blessed to have people that want to work with me. And everybody that works with me drinks less or not at all. And coaching, I love coaching. Having a social work background, I'm just a huge fan of coaching, seeing change in action. And I love it. So I also teach coaches. I train coaches. I recruit coaches for the program, which I've recruited you for, which is not a digital drink program. It's an international association of professional recovery coaches program. But I get to recruit coaches and train coaches and be alive and present for this beautiful, precious life that I have. I interviewed coaches. And I love the way you wrote, you know, raw. It was very raw. And that was one of the things that I was looking for was someone that could be raw and real because the fear on this side is you're going to be judged. I met you through Silver Coach and then I started reading your blogs and you were just so out there. And can you expand a little bit? Tell us a little bit about that. What began that journey of writing? Yeah, so that's beautiful. I'm glad you found me through it. And this is, we were divine connection. So it was, it was meant to be, of course. Well, I love to write and it's my creative expression and it's my way to share myself or tell my story. I've always been a writer. And I believe in recovering out loud, although I don't even call it recovery because recovery means to go back to who you were before something happened. So like back to who you were before drinking. And I call it discovery because I'm a new person now. I'm taking all this experience and it's basically like alchemized and transform me into somebody new. And I always say, if you don't know me sober, you don't know me. If you haven't gotten to me sober, you know, then we haven't met yet. I'm a new person. And so but rediscovery. Yeah. Sharing stories is healing. And just like I said, reading Holly Whitaker's blog and her rawness is the one to make me feel like I wasn't alone. There's somebody out there questioning these things. There's somebody out there feeling it. There's somebody else waking up like this and wondering what to do. And because other people's stories gave me the bravery to start to explore and to start to get curious, where I was afraid like I, because I'm perfect, I'm perfectionist. I was afraid to have something wrong with me. I was afraid what? to admit anything was wrong with me. So I had to not have anything wrong because I don't want anyone to worry about. I don't want to have anything wrong. And I definitely don't want to feel like alcoholic. I don't want to be called an alcoholic. And I'm not an alcoholic if I quit 
if I keep drinking, I'm I'm a party girl drinker. If I quit drinking, I get a label of alcoholic. It's insane to me. It's the only drug that you will get a label when you quit. As long as you keep doing it, no one's going to call you anything. But if you quit, someone's going to say, wow, why? Are you an alcoholic? And so there's something wrong with that word. If it works for you, that's fantastic. We get to label ourselves to each our own, right? It's not a medical term. It's not a medical term. The medical term is alcohol use disorder. Mm-hmm. And there's a spectrum. So everybody that has a drink of alcohol falls somewhere on that spectrum. So there is no like alcoholic or yes or no. It's the whole area of gray, which of course, you know, but some of those things prevented me from looking at it because I didn't want anything wrong with me. But to hear other people start to share their story, I couldn't help but resonate with that and relate to that. And it helped me. It helped me in my own journey. So I share mine. So it helps people too. So you can look at me and say, if this happened to her when she was able to get out, then maybe I could too. And mostly if I get out and I'm sober to show that it is not a life of deprivation, it is not a cage that you are living in. Like I thought it was with my one sober role model. Actually, my godmother's also taken my class. So I was like, well, stop when I'm quitting in the seventies. I needed women, but I was with all these old basement, you know, like I want to quit like you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, godmother, it's not too late. You quit like me now, right? Let's gather yourself. You can be so proud of yourself. You don't live and have to live in shame anymore. You can be so proud of yourself because you did that back when there was no resources for you, but you did it. And here you are. And now we do it like this. <laughs> now we have a fucking blush. <laughs> friends. Now we go to parties. Now we bring our own drinks. You know, now we just live the freaking best life and we keep learning and we keep growing and we develop closer relationships and we become the most empowered emboldened, you know, people out there because we're going against the stream when it comes to alcohol, which by the way, is the third preventable cause of death in the United States. So it's also like one in five deaths of people like 20 in age people, 20 to 50 and one in eight deaths overall. So it's not as glamorous as we've been sold for a very long time. I bought into the mommy wine culture. Of course I did. It suited me just fine to believe that stuff and share that stuff and promote that stuff. But the truth is alcohol is a drug. It has all the properties of a drug and it creates dependence. So if you have become addicted to an addictive substance, there's nothing wrong with you. Your body is doing what your body's supposed to be doing. And that drug is reacting the way that drug reacts. There's nothing wrong with you. But the number one thing you can do is say, I need help and then get it. And a sober coach is one great way to do that. Finding community is a great way to do that. There's many, there's many ways and many pathways, but yeah, stories heal. Stories definitely heal. So I have to share my. So did your story become, was it because I met you when you were already a sober coach or your stories first that you were writing this blog? And then you became the sober coach or how did Yeah. So I started, I started to drink with the, with the digital class and a blog. And why I became a sober coach and kept blogging, continued to blog, but was certified to then start coaching people one-on-one. Okay. And I know that this is a little bit off topic, but I having you here and we'll have another, you know, conversation more in depth about this because I think it's important for people because you know firsthand, Heather, in my journey, and I really like to bring awareness to people about not all sober coaches or recovered coaches are created equal. 
the certifications make a difference. And I didn't know that. You know, and people know that listening to my recovery story. But how did you go ahead and know and choose and be where you went? Because we see these, I'm sorry, but we do see these $79 courses, Mm -hmm. you know, that are just, yeah, just to bring awareness to whoever's listening to this, because it's very important. Yeah, it's kind of tricky because like as a social worker, I become licensed and certified with the Association of Social Work and there's only one and it's the accrediting body. Coaching doesn't have that. So technically anybody can call themselves a coach and anybody without any qualifications can do whatever they want. Wow. Because there's no governing body. That being said, I think it's generally accepted that the IDF or the International Coaching Federation is the gold standard when it comes to coaching. They're the furthest along. They have requirements. They're just widely accepted as, the, I think, the number one governing body that we have for lack of having an actual one, right? So the program that I recruit for, that I did, and that you did, is accredited through the ICF. So I think that is the gold standard to look for if you want to become a coach or if you're looking for a coach. Now, anyone can help anybody however they want. And there's certainly people that help people without being coaches. I'm not against that. But for coaching, coaching is not being a sponsor. Coaching is not being a mentor. Coaching is not being a peer. Coaching is not therapy. Coaching is not counseling. So there's a very specific thing that coaching is and that it's not and it's a very way to help people and when you go through the program that we've gone through you understand you learn the neuroscience of addiction you have leading edge brain research you learn positive psychology you learn how to ask questions right it's very much in how you ask questions to lead people through change there's information on change and transformation and change management and there's kind of pre-contemplation and contemplation. And, you know, there's all these things that happen before somebody takes a leap. It was pre-contemplation or contemplation for me looked like drinking wine, but reading sober blogs, Mm -hmm. right? It's somebody listening to this podcast, but drinking right now. They're starting to think about change. And you did too. You got curious before you actually took the leap and called me. So being accredited through the ICF means we have to meet certain requirements. And it means you're being trained in certain areas and there's a certain amount of teaching and training that's done. And there was an extensive live skills, as you know, a live skills with a live instructor. It wasn't just completing a a video lesson. You know, you actually had to learn and practice and become a coach. So I would say it's the gold standard in recovery coaching. It's been around for 30 years and has people in 38 nations. So it's the real deal. It's been around for a long time. But that's a little bit about coaching and the certification and the differences. And like I said, people can help people in all sorts of ways. And it doesn't necessarily take a coaching certification. But if you are coaching people, I thought I knew everything because I was a social work major. So I was skeptical. I was like, do I, I have a bachelor's degree. Do I really need the silly certification? Well, it turns out I did. <laughs> it turns out I didn't know what I didn't know until I went through it. And it has made me a coach and a good coach. And I would not have been that without. So that's what I will say about that. And also do shop around like you did. Have a compliment. Any good coach is going to offer a complimentary call like I do, like you do. And you can have more than one. And it, the most important thing coaching does is there's a connection. 
And for you and I, as you know, you felt safe and not judged with me. I had been where you are in. How could I judge you? I wouldn't. I only have eyes of compassion. And I had been where you are. So somebody who hasn't been there doesn't know. I mean, often I hear like therapists don't have a drinking problem. They they don't understand what it's like to have a drink now voice in your head. Well, I do because I have them. So I can understand yours because I have it too. And so there was a, you felt connected and you felt safe and you felt like you could trust me. And that in itself did a world of good. Plus then I was trained in actually how to coach you through getting sober, staying sober and all that good stuff. Yeah, I think it's the reason that I asked you this in your recovery story is because it was very important when the maintenance amount of how our relationship has grown from your relationship growing within yourself and then you're you're you are passing that along all your knowledge and i remember when we spoke about coaching and you're like viv become a coach and i was like no i don't i don't really want to do this you know i do mortgage and all of this and you said something to me that really resonated with me and now i understand it you said if anything viv you'll understand yourself so much on a bit way deeper level. Mm-hmm. And that was honestly is the biggest thing that the biggest advice that you could have given me because regardless if I had become a coach or not, all of your wisdom that you have had and patience with me <laughs> You, you know, because we were joking around the, the when we first met, I go, I feel like I'm at prom. I feel like you're my, <laughs> you know, you, you raise the teenager and you keep going, you know, but that, that was one of the things that you, the mentorship, it, it's just, this is an ongoing journey. Mm-hmm. And these are all, all, you know, I know that you're taking a memoir class also, getting ready to write a book. So I think that's, you know, that that's incredible, something to mention. And I guess lastly, my question that I'd also like to to ask you, what would you tell someone that is sober curious? That, so I would say, first of all, I'll take a break, take a break from drinking. And it doesn't, we're drinking black and white, especially as drinkers, but like, it doesn't have to be forever. So my philosophy is you have to take a break from alcohol to evaluate alcohol. Because while you're drinking, alcohol affects your mood, your judgment, your decision making, your intuition, your, you know, it, it messes everything up. So you can't look at it clearly, but take a break from drinking, evaluate it, and then decide what you want to do. Max drinking, drink less, drink not alcohol. You can go a little longer. You have options. So stop the black and white thinking. Just take a break for a period of time. For some people, that's one day. For some people, that's four days. Go as long as you can. Could it be seven days? Could it be a seven-day break? Could it be 30? And I like to take a bigger stretch. My coaching is for 90 because I think it's better to take a longer period of time so you don't just white-knuckle it and just sit and wait to drink again, but instead get a little bit comfortable with not drinking, right? Make yourself like a short airplane flight versus a long airplane flight. So on a short flight, you just sit and wait to get off the plane. And a long flight, you're going to make yourself comfortable for the ride. So I think in sobriety, if you can go to 90 days, I, you know, my first challenge was 100, something like that, something to commit to for the long haul to try to get comfortable. 
and you change in the process. Wait and see what happens. You're a different person on day 30, 60, 90 than you were on day one because you change. And what you might want more than having a glass of wine once in a while when you go out for dinner, which is everybody comes to me and that's their goal when we start. They want to be able to have a glass of wine once in a while, never drink too much. And I'm like, really, that's your goal? What if you lived your dreams come true? What if you lost the desire to drink at all? They're like, oh, that would be great. Okay, let's do that then. <laughs> let's work towards that. Let's work towards fixing your relationships and setting boundaries and having a career that you love and getting your health in order and looking at your sleep and your parenting. You know, let's create a life that you don't want to escape from. And what if we just took alcohol and all the thinking about drinking and all the headspace out of the equation? And you, what, could you see yourself not drinking and also not desiring to drink anymore? Because that's where I'm at. I don't want to drink. There's nothing a drink could give me. I'm not missing out on a damn thing. There's not one thing a drink could give me that sobriety hasn't already delivered on. So hey, man, that's, that's where great. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I never want to go back there again in a minute. Oh my God. Yes. That, you know, that those are words of wisdom, words of wisdom. I thank you so much for being here. And I, you know, I want to do another series because I'm having a series with women and some of them are on fear. Some of them are on anger. And I would love to do another series with you in regards, you know, to possibly, you know, coaching about what it is, what what the differences are, because I th that's one of the questions that a lot of people come to me with, like, what's the difference, Viv? What's yeah. the difference? So yeah, we'll definitely keep talking and you keep shining. You're bright, sober light, Viv. I love to watch you grow. You are a dream client and an amazing person who has so much to offer. So you're making a difference. Anyone that crosses your path is lucky as I'll get up to be in your presence, including me. Yeah. Well, right back at you. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. I, I know you would never accept that compliment, but that's the truth. So thank, thank you so much. I'll Heather. let that one in. Thank but, you very much. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, tell a friend or someone you know, pass this podcast on. And my information is Viv, founder of SoberIThrive.org. I'm an internationally certified in addiction recovery, other known as a sober coach and a life coach too. My certifications encompass the neuroscience of joyful recovery, roots of addictions, alcohol and its effects, dynamics of professional recovery coaching, motivation to change, right thinking in recovery, family issues in recovery, codependent behaviors in addiction, and ethical and legal issues in professional recovery coaching. Go to my website, soberithrive.org, and book your free, confidential, 30-minute call. We can help create the sober warrior within you.